Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. This is episode 9, In The Loop. Last episode, we had a fascinating chat with crypto artist Kai Morton about the rise of NFTs. Be sure to check out that episode and any others that take your fancy after this. So this week, we are joined by another wonderful guest. We're going to be talking about circular economy with one of our dear lecturers, Claire Potter. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Very good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's great to be on. You're the first of our, of our lecturers to, uh, to test these waters and join us on here, so... Quite exciting. So I'm the I'm the brave one, am I? <laughs> yes, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, the third guest to the podcast, first of the lecturers, and we'll be hopefully inviting some others. I actually ran into Geo on a bus yesterday, so <laughs> you ran into Geo on a bus, not not with a bus. I hope <laughs> no, not with a bus. <laughs> He'll still be teaching. Don't worry. <laughs> so I guess to begin, Claire, could you? introduce yourself, give a little bit of a self-bio? Sure. So, yeah. So, hi, I'm Claire Potter. I born and bred in Brighton, which is where I still am now. Um, always had a really keen interest in the environment. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist. So, um, this was my obsession with the sea. And to cut a very long story short, I ended up doing architecture at university in Brighton. Did interior architecture and ended up going down a very, very different path, which was um, basically design in the built environment. It still had that deep connection to um, trying to make something better and trying to make sure that whatever designs I was making, whether they were quite small or massive, were to sort of regenerate the environment or protect it in some way. Uh, And then I ended up setting up my own design studio to basically do that in 2008, which is what I've been running since doing a variety of different projects, and then also teaching up at the University of Sussex on the BSc and the BA product design degree as well, where I know you guys from. Yes. Well, thank you very much. That's you, and you know who we are. We are your students. (laughs) Yep. Yes. Fabulous students as well, I will say. Thank you. Why, thank you. Luckily, you're not having to grade me at any points at all, so if I mess up, it's not going to impact my grades. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the pressure's off with george pablo yeah you're still you're still on the pressure at the minute but george yeah, is, that is just home terrifies free. me even more <laughs> well i guess i have to ask good big questions so the first good big question for the listeners of ours who are unaware is what is the circular economy oh that's that's a, a massive massive question in itself but um the circular economy is basically a, a system or a series of systems that are regenerative by design. So that is the terminology that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation uses, which are one of the um, largest global research agencies around the circular economy. So it sounds a bit big and it sounds a bit scary and it sounds very complicated. And it is, but we can sort of pare it down and think about what exactly is it and how do we relate to it as human beings? So we can think about how nature works. So even though the circular economy, as far as us working and living, can be anything from material supply chains to making sure something's repairable, 
to making sure that um, things go round and round and are connected together in loops and nothing goes to waste, we can think about how nature works. And nature does exactly this because nature has no waste. So even though many people might aspire to be zero wasters, nature does this anyway. We're the only species on the planet that creates any form of waste. So if we think about it from um, a a really simple example, a caterpillar might eat a leaf um, and then eventually the caterpillar might get eaten by a bird. That bird might die. That bird composts into the ground that then creates the food that can nourish the tree to allow the tree to grow more leaves that can then feed more caterpillars. So we can see things go round and round in circles. And that's what the circular economy is. It's trying to create systems that function in the same way that nature has been doing ever since the beginning of time. So would you say that there are really kind of close ties to biomimicry within designing for the circular economy? Definitely. So biomimicry is a great terminology, which basically means to mimic something of of nature. So even though biomimicry in design terms might be, um, for example, Velcro. Velcro is designed very much like the burrs of seeds. So they cling onto your clothing. Um, The designer, the engineer who actually created Velcro had watched the way that seeds connected onto his dog's fur. And that's what eventually became Velcro using a very similar uh, mimicry of that system. But yeah, in the crux of it, we are trying to um, biomimic all of the way that nature works to create a multitude of systems to allow us to work too. It's really fascinating. It kind of seems such a you know, normal concept that we just do the same as what nature is doing. Um, and yeah, it does. It's, when you look at the nitty gritty of it, it's, it's kind of scary how much we're not doing of that that you that we're like we need to make so much change to do this but it's it's a really cool concept yeah and it's it's exactly as you say it's it's kind of sad that we've gone so far away from working in alignment with everything else that we live with so we are just literally a tiny speck when we think about the the mass of life on this planet and including the planet itself and because we are the dominant species we we have been able to um, take more than, than we should. We've been able to affect systems in ways that are unimaginable before, uh, create exponential change to the way that our planet is working. And yet we were only a tiny speck of that. We sort of see ourselves as being outside of the system rather than being part of that system. And without all of the rest of our co-pilots on this planet and the planet itself, we don't have a home. So it's kind of in our best interests to make sure it works properly. God, yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's a definite disconnect between acting in the circular economy as an individual versus as a corporation, a producer, an organization. Would you say one is more effective than the other or one is kind of easier or, yeah, more functional, I guess? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And um, it's one of my biggest bugbears, actually, because as individuals, consumers, whatever we want to call ourselves, we quite often get lumped with quite a lot of guilt, uh, particularly when it comes to things, say, like packaging. Um, we have to be responsible to get rid of something, to recycle something, to make sure that we are doing the best thing, when in reality, a lot of the big brands aren't giving us a huge amount of choice. Um, some things might be out of reach for us economically. We aren't able to maybe purchase all of our shopping packaging free. 
So again, we're sort of limited by what's on offer to us by others. So yes, the individual has a huge amount to play, but it also means that the be corporations and the businesses should be offering us things that better fit a circular economy. And that might even mean that governments and legislation has to be brought into play as well. So each of us need to work together. Um, but yeah, it's my biggest bugbear that quite often brands will just throw the guilt onto us and say, well, you should do better as an individual. We should all reduce our carbon footprint, which is true. But you know, if you've got a load of bad options, then maybe we're just making the best decision out of the bad options that they're giving us. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen ads from all those large energy companies like BP and Exxon saying, hey, we have a new, you know, check your carbon footprint thing while completely <laughs> ignoring their most recent oil spill. Yeah. yeah and fossil fuels, uh, that's, the, I mean, fossil fuel companies generally have known about um, carbon-based climate change since the 60s and the 70s. There are a multitude of studies that were released and commissioned um, by the um, by the fossil fuel companies. Some were released, some were squashed. But they knew that their actions were having huge environmental change and would continue to have environmental change. But nobody talked about it because it wasn't in their best interest. The same as, uh, as happened with tobacco. Very, very similar ways of working. Studies were commissioned. They didn't get the answers that they wanted. So therefore, it was just you know, hidden away in somebody's drawer. Um, and this is only just really coming to light exactly how long people have known how our actions are affecting our climate. Mm, yeah, I remember doing some reading something of an article um, a little while ago about the studies because it was sort of in the 70s and 60s, 70s, it was almost like global warming versus global cooling. And there was just this, yeah. there was this sort of scientific debate, I suppose. And yeah, I think the obviously we know what the actual answer ended up being but yeah reading that oil companies and stuff like that were sort of funding these global cooling studies and trying to almost trying to find an answer where there wasn't an answer it's it is scary yeah it, uh, internal lobbying happens a lot so research agencies that are funded specifically from any industry and this could be anything from fossil fuels to food for example um people will be funded to do particular studies. And obviously the people that are funding them want to get a particular answer. Now, if they don't get the answer from that study that they want, then they probably just won't talk about it. So it's not to say that researchers skew data that, you know, I'm sure it happens in some places, but most researchers and scientists are pure to that research and science. But it just means that if the results don't fit the funder, then it might not be published elsewhere. Mm. Yeah, and these—I mean—you talk about food and packaging. It's it. They sort of try and push a bit more of the eco anxiety onto the consumer, don't they? Was you go to the shop and you're like, "Well, I want to be good, but that's that's a nice food that I want to eat, but it's in a plastic bag." And then you have yeah, it's it's very tricky to decide. I what think you it's ridiculous do. with food too that you know so much of it is. It would be so easy for it to be better, yet the companies that are producing, you know, supermarkets are producing and packaging these things just don't do it because it's not like the consumer really has a choice if, you know, all the oranges are already in a bag. Yeah. Choices is, is an interesting one to pick up on, actually, because it used to be that we didn't have much choice. So it might have been because um, trade wasn't as fluid as it is now. So you didn't have a variety of different things to choose from. And if you think about it, if we go to a supermarket, you might have the choice of 15 different 
types of apple. And those apples might have come from the UK. They might have come from as far away as New Zealand. Now, back when my grandma was younger, you went to the shop and you bought an apple and you maybe had the choice of eating apple or cooking apple. We didn't have the choices, whereas now almost every single product that we can go into a supermarket of a decent size, which, you know, in the UK is, you know, usually not very far away from wherever we are. We have a, such a vast amount of choice and it's different sizes of things, different, you know, types of things, um, pre-packaged or unpackaged. Whereas before it was just an apple and it sat in a crate and you picked out how many that you wanted. Um, and also with packaging that that also winds me up is the fact that quite often buying things that are pre-packaged is cheaper than buying things that are loose. So again, if you think about the economics, if you're on a really tight budget, if you could buy three peppers in a plastic sleeve for a pound, but yet to buy those individually, it would cost you pound fifty. most people or a lot of people would maybe go, mm, I need to save that 50p. So they are being forced into buying something packaged and then having the responsibility and guilt of having that plastic when really it should be the supermarkets offering us an equal um, choice between something that's packaged and maybe something that isn't. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because how is, how is that price even you know working out? Because you would have thought logically that the apples are probably the same and so having them packaged they're having to add an extra process and material on that would surely be adding some cost, but yeah, they're not. Sometimes it's that um, things that are prepackaged might be slightly smaller. So you might have a prepackaged um, bag of, say, six apples, and it will tell you the quantity of the apples. This contains six apples. Whereas sometimes if you were to weigh those six apples and then have six unpackaged apples, the unpackaged ones might be slightly um, bigger. So it becomes very complicated because you know how much is in one bag, i.e. six apples. You know that you can pick up six apples, but then those six apples might be larger. And if they're done by weight, you might not know exactly how much those six apples weigh and therefore how much they cost. So what has been interesting is I've seen in supermarkets now, they've gone away from telling people you know, it's X amount per kilo for these apples, but they are actually actually saying it's now 25p for this apple because it means that people can quite clearly see the difference between buying six loose apples and maybe buying six prepackaged apples. But then we don't know how big either of those apples are. So this is why shopping is so complicated. Um, it could take forever if you were to stand in front and work out the best value and the best option for you. And really, People don't have the time, which is, again, why a prepackaged bag is to quick grab, go off and do something else um, just to mean that you're not spending three hours in your supermarket. Mm -hmm. So I know you did some design work on the Hisby store here in Brighton. Yes. And I'm wondering if there were any links towards kind of that packaging sales that we've just discussed and what you might have done. Yeah, sure. Uh, my my best. I mean, I loved working on the Hisby store. It was Really interesting project. So Hisby, um, for those guys who aren't in Brighton, it's an independent supermarket. They've just opened up their second branch actually in Worthing. The Hisby stands for how it should be. And the premise of the of the supermarket is that you can go into the store and you don't have to worry about the ethics of what you are buying because that's been done for you. So everything is uh, everything that's in the store is how it should be. 
So we're talking about things that are fairly priced. Um, so the farmers, manufacturers, suppliers get the fair prices for their products. It might be that it's local. It might be that it's seasonal. It might be that it's organic. So there's a variety of different metrics that all of the things relate to in the store. But it means that you don't have to hunt out those items like you would do maybe in a supermarket. And the way I described it to people when we were first doing the design is that we have um, Infinity Foods in Brighton as well, which is the very traditional uh, style health food organic store that's been in Brighton, oh gosh, since the 70s maybe, maybe before. But everything is quite a high price. Um, and you get a particular type of consumer that shops there. But then you have the supermarkets, which we can all go into, that you might find the local, you might find the fair trade, you might find the organic, but you have to search around a little bit more. And it's going to be a lower price, maybe than the Infinity Foods, but you've got to put the legwork in to find that. And his be sort of sat in the middle. So it's um, cheaper in many respects than the traditional health food store because they've got more volume of buying power. But then um, you don't have to hunt around like you would in a supermarket. So it looks like a supermarket, which we thought was really important because it meant that people felt comfortable going in there and shopping. But there was one part of the store that I wasn't convinced was going to work. So when we were asked to design the store, they, um, so um, Ruth and Amy, who set up Hisby, they wanted to have the refill section in the middle, which was the loose fill refill bins. Now, oh gosh, how many years ago is it that Hisby opened? Is it five or seven? It's a while ago now. And I remember doing loose fill, like refilling containers with my nan down George Street in Hove in the Scoop and Way. And I hadn't really done that for many years. And there wasn't refill stores like we know them now. And they told me about these bins and we designed this whole area. And I was like, I really hope this is going to work but I don't think it will. So let's make it modular. So at least we can move it around or adjust it and tweak it. So the space isn't wasted. And that's how generally we do our designs anyway. It's modular. So things can be amended according to what's needed by the client in the future. It just makes it more circular in that respect. You can change it. And honestly, within, oh gosh, two months of opening, Amy and Ruth were like, yeah, you know, you said you'd eat your hat if that didn't, you know, if it worked. We'll get ready to eat that hat because we now need to make that section bigger. And it was wow. amazing, amazing that people went in and were buying everything from chocolate buttons down to flour and couscous and rice and everything in between. And now the refill section of Hisby has grown to include oils and herbs and uh, supplements, cleaning products, um, you name it. It's pretty, If you can get it refilled, you can now get it at the Hisby store. So that is a section that I thought, wow, I really don't think people are going to get it. But everybody did. And now, I mean, in Brighton alone, I think we have six, maybe seven different locations around the city that are specifically refill centres. So loose fill, zero packaging stores, whatever you want to call them. So that was just a joy to see actually succeed um, and get bigger year to year. Which hat did you eat? Oh, <laughs> I have to admit I did not, but it probably would have been a straw one that I could maybe have soaked and, and made mm. a little bit more palatable. <laughs> That's quite an interesting and positive, I suppose, outcome that actually, you know, the general public have taken to those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I didn't think it would work is that 
We have become so used to convenience everything and we know that people are cooking less. That's probably changed a little bit because of COVID, actually. People are cooking more. But if you cooked or you um, were more connected with your ingredients, you could you can generally see or feel how much 100 grams weighs. I know it sounds crazy. I, I bake a lot. So I can cut a section of butter off um, and go, yeah, that's 25 grams. And within a small margin of error, it will be about 25 grams because I'm so used to seeing that weight. And I was really worried that people would go to use the refill um, section. And even though it was so clearly labeled how much per 100 grams or whatever this thing was, they wouldn't know until it's been removed from that dispenser into their bag and then they've weighed it. And I was envisioning people going, oh, man, I don't, you know, I don't want to spend seven pounds on chocolate buttons, not because they didn't feel or couldn't see how much that weighed in, in, in a visual sense. Um, and therefore, then you'd have product wastage, which would mean that it would be less viable because that product couldn't then go back in the dispenser, for example, because it's been out of the dispenser. So I was just really concerned that there would be so much wastage that it wouldn't make it profitable. Uh, but in actual fact, you know, that probably happened very, very, very rarely. Um, and it was great. And the good thing about it is that you can just get 10 grams of something if that's all you need. So you're eliminating potential food waste as well. You don't need to have a kilo of something if you just need 25 grams of it. So you can save money and you could also save food waste and you save the space that you would have to take to store it at home. But yeah, that's an interesting way because you often see uh, brands and stuff talking about online, you know, eliminating food waste, getting just just buying what you need sort of thing. But yeah, oftentimes people can't buy just what they need because it comes in one bulk package. Yeah, food waste is potentially one of the most impactful things that we can all do on an individual level. So an average European wastes around one in three bags of shopping. So that's stuff that maybe goes out of date, you forget about, um, goes in the bin. Now, if you can imagine that you have £100 in your wallet and I say to you, okay, give me £33 and 33 pence to be precise. Um, I'm going to take that and put it in the bin or through a shredder. People would go, no, you're not. What are you doing? That's ridiculous. I'm not giving you my money. But that's exactly what we're doing on an annual basis. We're throwing away a third of all that food that's come into our, into our homes. So that not only is a waste of money for us, it's a waste of resources because that food has been grown, it's been processed, it's been transported. Um, it's waste of calories that could have been eaten by us or by somebody else uh, or something else if we think about um, uh, livestock. But also it's um, a problem because of carbon, because uh, when food waste actually rots down, if it's not in a proper compostable composting system, it produces methane. And methane is 23 to 26 times more impactful as a greenhouse gas than carbon is. So if we were to add up the sort of CO2 or carbon dioxide equivalent of emissions from food waste, it would be, if it was a country, the third biggest on the globe behind the USA and China. So that is how big our global food waste impacts have. So we should be saving money and eating everything that we have. So eliminating food waste is a big thing that we can do and very much part of a circular economy. That's that's a huge amount. <laughs> that's a crazy number, yeah. <laughs> wow. I guess that ties really well into, so we, you know, we're talking about kind of food waste and that will tie well into 
I guess, discussing what individuals can do before we go into the greater economy and, you know, just getting in- industries into it. But from the individual perspective, obviously, you have limitations, you have financial limitations, but beyond kind of not wasting food and trying to buy ethically, what are some steps that you have done or what would want to do or want people to do? Sure. So everybody will probably remember the the mantra of reduce, reuse, recycle. It's the one that's in, you know ingrained in us from youth. Um, that goes back to sort of the 60s, 70s again. But if we think about what we do as an individual, quite often we do that last thing. We do the recycle. So we're pretty good at recycling. And even though recycling is pretty crap as far as how, how efficient it is as a system, but very rarely do we do the first two. We don't do so much of the reduce and we don't do so much of the reuse. So a circular economy can encompass so many different actions. Um, and uh, actually, we've, we've just set up a resource, which I'll talk about later on, which is basically talking people through those different steps that could be part of a circular economy for them on an individual basis. But just if we go, and there's around 12 different actions that people can do, but if we think about just those three, first of all is reduce. Whenever you're purchasing something or looking to purchase anything, do you actually need it? That is just the first thing to ask. You might need it. It might be something that you need for a particular job. It might be something like food. But if we can reduce the amount that we're bringing into our lives, um, and then when it gets to the reuse stage, are we able to repair those things? Are we able to use them for as long as possible before they reach end of life in the sort of linear way that we currently work? So that might be reusing something for many, many years. Uh, If we think about fashion, it might be not discarding things after a few wears or at the end of a season, just because a high street brand has told you there's something else that's far more interesting and sexy to wear. Do you know <laughs> what? Clothing takes a hell of a lot of energy to produce. So we should be keeping that going for as long as possible. So reuse is when we think about loop going round and round in that loop of a circular economy. Reuse is a thing that we should be doing as a primary function, not just something we skip over because brands have sort of allowed us to get to that recycling stage at the end and feel less guilty when really reducing and reusing should be the top two and recycling should be the very, very last thing that we do because it's a destructive process. It takes energy to move stuff around. It takes energy to destroy it and turn it into new stuff. So whilst it's needed, we should be doing the first two far, far more. I guess those those two also save the consumer a lot more money than recycling would as well, because you're not buying as much and you're using it for longer. So the cost of it is being spread out. It's, I mean, yeah, it seems to make like a lot of sense, really. It really does. And it's what a lot of brands maybe don't push as much because of course, many brands, there are some exceptions, but many brands want you to buy more, 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 because that's exactly what makes the world go around in their eyes. It's consumption. However, if you have got something that you're keeping for as long as possible, you become emotionally attached to that thing, perhaps. Um, Repairing something is a wonderful thing to do. You get such a sense of satisfaction knowing that you've been able to repair it and make it last longer or pass it on to somebody else. Um, And yeah, it saves you cash. You know, I always say there's a reason why economy is half of the circular economy, because it is about money. It's about making things go round and be as efficient as possible in both resources, but also with cash. So reuse isn't something to to be ashamed of. Reuse is something we should be celebrating far, far more. 
Yeah, and I think recycling is so treated as kind of the end all absolve your guilt solution, as opposed to what it really should be as the kind of final last resort, as opposed to straight up disposal. And that's really damaging. Yeah, it's it's the easy thing. It's the sort of get out of jail free card that the brands give us. It's almost like, don't worry about buying this thing because you can recycle it at the end. And even though that might be true, it's sort of they're sort of allowing us to do something that maybe we're not considering as deeply as we should. And again, that's not to push the guilt onto the individual. We're all very busy and we all have very different lives that we're living. But I think recycling is is instead of it being reduced, reuse, recycled, just to even use those three. And as I said, in a true circular system, there's many more that go into that. Instead of being reduced, reuse, recycle, brands have sort of flipped it around and it's saying, you know, recycle, reuse if you have to. And yeah, don't worry about the reduce bit because it's not in their best interest. So we need to flip it back in the way that actually suits us and suits the planet better. So I think that sort of ties quite well into how we can shift those sort of brands away from that model. Because obviously the world is so set up around consumerism and just buying more. That's that's how to keep these brands afloat, I guess, in their eyes. But to go to a more circular economy, these brands, I guess, need to have other monetary ways of surviving that isn't just about making more profits. Yeah, there's different systems that people can can look out for so we always say that we have far more power as individuals than we might think we might yes brands definitely companies need to do far more as do governments and legislation you know there's a reason why rules exist you know sometimes we need to be working on this in singing from the same song sheet so that definitely needs to happen but as an individual every time you spend your hard-earned cash you are voting for something to exist and you are allowing that thing to continue. So if there's something that you don't like as a, uh, a way of working, don't support that company. Find somebody that fits within the values that you have or the aspirations that you have. And even if you can't afford to buy that product all of the time, by buying it some of the time and maybe lessening your um your reliance on a different product means that you are still voting for something that is a positive change. And brands do take a take a huge amount of notice of this because if it's hurting their bottom line and it's hurting their profit margin, they will look to understand why. So this is why we've seen such an increase in brands maybe communicating to us about what they're doing with packaging, uh, how they're using recycled plastic in their packaging, because they realize that more people are understandably very concerned about how their actions turn into um, uh, implications elsewhere in the world. So that's one thing we can always do. And it doesn't make any difference whether it is um, a small purchase or a very, very large purchase. Try and consider what you can and think deeply about what you can do to affect change. And then also when you are looking for purchases, particularly larger purchases, maybe equipment, appliances, clothing, you can look for brands that offer some kind of take back scheme. So when it does get to the end of life and maybe a T-shirt has got to that you know, end stage that it really is hanging in threads off of you, you can't repair it anymore. Some brands actually allow you to send it back and you get a voucher on a purchase of a new one and they take that old T-shirt and they turn it back into fibers to make another T-shirt, for example. 
or they might offer a repair scheme like Patagonia do. So yes, a Patagonia jacket is a high purchase, high ticket item, but you have got a contract almost with that brand that they will bring it back, they will take it back and they will help you to repair it and keep it going for much, much longer. And one thing I always say to people is you don't have to buy this stuff new. We we kind of forget that we can get access to all this amazing stuff and we can get access to it much cheaper through things like eBay, Facebook Marketplace, Depop, Vinted, you name it. There are people that are selling secondhand items that are maybe very high ticket price to begin with. But if you can't afford that, you might be able to be able to purchase it secondhand. Things like jewelit toasters, you can repair them brilliantly. That might be out of the reach of somebody to buy brand new, whereas you might be able to get one. Maybe it's even busted and you can fix it, but you might be able to get it for 20 quid on eBay. Buy the spare parts, repair it, and it will last for much, much longer. So voting with your wallet, you know, being aware and opening your eyes and supporting those who really are doing the stuff that you believe in. That's that's so, so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, that's an interesting thing you said as well about, you know, not having to buy these brands all the time. I'd not, it's something I'd not really considered, to be honest, because you often look at these, you know, if I'm looking at clothing or anything like that, I try and search around to find these good brands and I'll find like some lists of like, oh, here, here's some brands that we've done some checks on. They're really good for the environment and social issues and stuff like that. And you look on their website and their pair of jeans is like 120 quid. And I'm like, yeah, it's just a little bit out of reach for me. But that's, it's kind of an interesting idea that you don't have to, obviously, yeah, you can look for secondhand, but buying something as a one-off from some of these brands, I guess you can almost transition a bit more gradually because these more expensive things are probably going to last a lot longer as well. Yeah, it's definitely not an all or nothing. You don't have to be an ethical consumer or an unethical consumer. There is there are so many shades of grey in between. It's unbelievable. And to be, you know, in, in the inverted commas, a, a, an ethical consumer is probably out of the reach economically of all of us all of the time. You know, we, we have to make um, compromises. There's nothing wrong with that. What is interesting with regards to purchasing models as well is that we're very used to buying something outright at the beginning. Whereas sometimes there, and there are systems, so Mud Jeans is one of my favorite ones. This is a a company based in the Netherlands and they produce organic Italian denim jeans that are just beautiful. Uh, and, you know, as you just said, George, they're a, they're a high price. They're maybe 120, 30, 50 pounds for a pair of jeans. Now they do offer a take back system, which is great. But if you can't afford 150 quid out in one go, they actually offer a leasing system. So you can buy the jeans over a period of months and you pay a small amount of money per month and then when you've bought them outright, you can either send them back and then you can get another pair of jeans and you continue to pay that little bit by little bit. Or you can say, it's okay, fine. I'm going to keep these jeans because they're now mine. So it means that that cost is spread over maybe a more manageable amount of time, which means that these jeans, which are incredibly high quality, very responsibly sourced, uh, and even to the point where with mud jeans, they don't have um, uh, extra stitched labels on the back. It's printed, which means that there's one less material to reprocess at end of life, which means it's easy to reprocess. It's a purer material. And therefore, in circularity terms, it means it can be reused and, and reprocessed much, much quicker and easier. Um, so they're doing a huge amount of stuff um, as a company. So we, maybe we will see more of those kinds of models coming into play to allow people to have maybe a, 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 a 
a bigger purchase, but spread over a longer amount of time. I think that's a really interesting model. And it's something that has often existed in a very predatory way for like kind of, you know, preying on people who can't afford things with high interest rates. And, you know, we take back the item the second you're day late on a payment. But it's an idea that really can be transformed into something more beneficial to getting high quality, sustainable goods that will cost more money without having to severely break the bank on the day of purchase. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It, it, sort of these higher purchase schemes definitely, as you said, have been incredibly predatory, um, targeting the people that have the lowest available uh, income and you know sticking the interest rates, which are just astronomically awful. Um, and that is a real shame that that kind of business model, which could be really productive and it could help a lot of businesses understand even how much money is coming in every single month. It helps them to sort out cash flow as well. As long as it's not done at the detriment and at the abuse of the people that are purchasing whatever item it is. So, yeah, I think that whole business model could be shaken up in a much, much, much more positive way. I think that's very, very interesting. And I guess to close out of this episode, we're starting to run up into the time. Uh, but what would you say is a favorite kind of lesson or fact or, I guess, piece of information that you find very important and that you want to teach and share? Oh, gosh. Oh, there's so many. So when I generally talk about the circular economy, there are so many massive stats. We've run through quite a few here. We There's stats about ocean plastic. There's stats about carbon. There's so many statistics that are so important for people to understand and know about. But stats are kind of, you know, they're intangible. You can't understand them. They don't mean anything to an individual. Um. So it's all it's great to understand that. But as far as facts go, or the powerful thing is the thing we've been speaking about all the way through. Regardless of where you are in the world, or where how old you are, or what economic background you're from, what size family you're from, everything, every single person makes a difference. So we can think about the whole butterfly effect. You know, a butterfly flutters its wings on one side of the the world, and that ripple effect eventually becomes a tornado in sort of Southern America. Um, that's what the circular economy can be, but in a really positive way. Small actions across the globe link together and can create really impactful change. So never feel hopeless. That is the one thing I will say to everybody. You might read the news, you might see horrendous things, wildfires, floods, and everything that is happening because of climate change. And don't ever think that your choices on an everyday basis add up. They really do. And every small step that you're doing to make that more positively impactful will rub off everybody else and we will get to a much, much better place. That's really, really inspiring. Well, that is a wonderful positive note to end on, I think, isn't it? I'm all about positivity. <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth adding that, you know, if you want to start being sustainable personally, obviously the big thing is to hold big brands accountable, but it doesn't take purchasing to get started. I know, Claire, you mentioned this in one of our classes. You don't need to get the trendy sustainable bottle or plate to do it. Just go with what you have. It's better to use something less kind of green that you already own as opposed to buying something new and just start today, you know? Yeah. You you don't need that beautiful stainless steel water bottle. You need something that holds water. That could be a, a, a pasta jar out of your cupboard after you've had that. It could be anything. So don't think that to become 
you know, again, an ethical consumer, you need to have all of this standard Instagram ready kit. You really don't, you know, to go back to those three R's, reducing what you're bringing into your life. Do you need it? No, I've got something else that can actually hold my water. So then reuse something else again and again. That is, that's the most important thing. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been a super interesting episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. Do you have any promotions? You've uh, got something that you're working on lately. I don't know if you wanted to talk about it or not. Yeah, I can do. It's it's super exciting. So it, we were just saying before we started recording, exactly a year ago, almost to the day, um, I was commissioned to write a book uh, all about explaining the circular economy to uh, everyday people. So not business leaders, not policymakers, not people that do this on an everyday basis, but to everybody in terminology that everybody would understand and feel that they can be part of. So the book is coming out in September. It's going to be called The Circular Economy for Regular People, i.e. all of us. And it goes through that entire story of what the circular economy is and how you can apply it to your life. So that's exciting coming out in September. And alongside that, we've just launched an online resource, which is allowing people to get their teeth into things in um, a real sort of surface level, but get sort of wet to the appetite. And uh, that's one circular dot world and that explains the circular economy so if it's something you're not too sure about you want to have a dig about and see how your actions can make really positive change that's a great little resource um there'll be blog posts added to that every single um, week as well talking about something specifically to do the circular economy awesome i'm very excited for your book actually very yeah. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> it was, I did actually sit down and read it all. It was quite an emotional moment, actually, going from, you know, as we said, like tracked changes in a Word document to suddenly seeing it as a, a PDF that looked like a real book, or even though it was just on my my laptop. So yeah, I shed a couple of tears at that, and you kind of forget all the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it, and you see something. I mean, you guys can definitely relate to this from doing your own work. It's a lot of work to do it, but the satisfaction and, and sense of achievement when it eventually comes to it is is wonderful. I just hope that people enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Yeah, when it all comes together, it's amazing. <laughs> it always does eventually, I promise. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us, Claire. And thank you, all you listeners, for listening. Make sure to check out Claire's book when it's out, as well as onecircular.world. That's a very fun domain. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and your backyard cow. Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations, and we rely entirely on your word of mouth as our listeners. Yes, we do indeed. So follow us on Instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work, including behind the scenes, outtakes, projects, and updates. Once more, remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and backyard cow. Check out Claire's book, check out her website, and we'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoilis and George Wyeth and edited by George Wyeth. Music is by Mikey Burtwistle. This is a 7-6 podcasting production.